Hello and welcome to Exocast, the best and most exoplanetarific podcast around and the only one that takes you far beyond the solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. We think we have another great show lined up for you today. Our roving reporter Hugh is at the first ever Test Science Conference, aka TESCON, and we'll be catching up on all the new developments from the meeting and the mission. I'll give an overview of planetary protection, a topic on which we touched briefly last month, and Hannah has scoured the archive to read all the papers so you don't have to, and we'll join her at the news desk a little later on. But before all that, let's introduce the crew. Uh, I'm Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral astrobiologist at the University of California, Irvine, where I study planetary habitability. I'm Hugh Osborne. I'm a postdoc in South France in Marseille, where I study transiting exoplanets. And I'm Hannah Wakeford. I'm a postdoc at the Space Telescope Science Institute, where I try to characterise and understand the atmospheres of exoplanets. Fantastic. Well, hello. Well, happy J- July to everyone. I hope we've had a good month. Hello. Um, yeah, yeah, it's July. It's been a quiet one for me, uh, fortunately, after after some travel last month. I've recovered my voice, so the listeners can hear that. Um, but how are, how are things with you, Hannah? I'm trying to recall. I've done a lot of traveling, but I'm trying to recall what for. I think I... <laughs> Welcome to Scientist Life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had I had a lot of trips. Um, I had some fun trips as well. You know, some weekends away, um, seeing friends and family. So that was good. And then just some uh, running around, getting getting things done. Trips, um, collaborators, and and going to to various things that are required at this stage of academia. So uh, it's been a bit all over the place. But I I'm you know in one of those constant states. I don't know if you guys do this as well, but whenever I'm kind of take a moment and I've forgotten what I've been doing I have to sit down and make a timetable of what's coming up and a to-do list of what needs to be done and when and yeah yeah. so I'm just this this week I've just been making lists and lists and lists so many lists (laughs) Um, they both relieve and add to my stress you know if I can start taking stuff off it feels good you know I find it like Mm. if I'm really stressed out I just kind of wipe out all of my lists and I start again and I go okay what do I really need to do and I find that really relaxing so we I, I'm always making lists. Oh, do, do you add make lists to your list? Is that, I mean, it's something things? that I think about. I don't write it down. <laughs> Sometimes on my list is like literally get up out of bed or like have a shower. Oh, like, an easy tick. Yeah, just those are something that, you can, like, that makes off, you really feel like you've done something because there's some days where it's like you've just got to go do stuff. Yesterday I had uh on my list i had one hour free so i was like right i need to go fill up the car with petrol i need to go do the shopping i need to go do uh, a load of alcohol shopping because i'm having a party this weekend and i was like right let's get them (laughs) off the list because otherwise they're going to annoy me for the rest of the week so i mean it's just really simple things like that and then then you can really organize everything that we're doing because i've got like uh, so many projects on the go at the moment it's really nice to see where they will fit into each other and when i can get things done yeah there we go productivity tips from exocast as well Um, (laughs) me i think i've been in the office three days this month because i i have had two conferences and then two weeks traveling so i've uh yeah i i've been avoiding making lists personally uh, (laughs) pros and cons of science so i guess um yeah in in lieu of uh of just one guest uh we'll continue our conference theme and catch up with uh with hughes reporting live from the test science conference held in cambridge uh massachusetts slash mit how's it going over there hugh 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a really interesting conference. We're only currently a, a couple of days in, so uh, I'm sure there's lots of cool science to come. But but even after you know two days science, it's been really really interesting. Even the, the things that I didn't expect to really enjoy is there's a lot of non exoplanet science here. So there's a lot of people doing stars, a lot of people doing uh, supernovae. You know, TESS is, a, is an all sky supernovae mission for for the, the galactic folk. Um, and it's not an exoplanet mission, and that's a really cool see- to see the other uh, side of the coin in, in kind of that respect. Uh, but no, it's, re- it's super interesting, and and some good news, of course. Uh, Tess's extension, so Tess was officially extended about ten days ago by NASA for another two years. I think every- everyone was kind of expecting that because a two-year mission is not particularly long, especially for a, a satellite which can last apparently for three hundred years. Right. It has three hundred years worth of fuel. Wow! So, I remember um, seeing a talk and just the stability of the orbit that it's in is insane like it's going it, it has the ability to without correction last in that orbit until 2045 or something yeah but i mean they do have to correct it because otherwise it will hit the moon or something <laughs> like this so <laughs> um yeah but it's uh yeah it's great and there's also been new planets announced so there was a, a paper out this week from uh, max gunter about three new test planets which probably uh, beat our press in terms of the the new script, but we'll talk about it next month maybe. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's, been that's super a, cool. it's it's interesting. We should let the let the viewers know that you know we're recording this on the second day of the test conference, and there's going to be so many different exciting announcements towards the end there, and he's going to capture some of that um, in in his little segment. Uh, yeah, one thing I'm also about to capture is how well you guys are at, um, at exoplanet trivia. Bollocks. So, Hugh <laughs> loves a quiz, everyone. Uh, if you haven't already, who doesn't? Who doesn't? Appearance on a University Challenge back in the UK, <laughs> 2016, Warwick versus uh, Clare College. No. Um, <laughs> so, who's going first? I mean, I, I don't know. Okay. It depends Anna, your on how the quiz up. is formatted because I'll just I'll just repeat all of Andrew's answers. <laughs> there will be a 60 seconds um, in which I will ask you as many questions as. as possible you can pass them if you like um and the person who answers the most at the end wins and will uh, adopt the planet this month i think that's the plan this wasn't on my list of things that i had to do it's stressing me out well now it is <laughs> all right then Hugh. let's do okay. it okay are you ready yeah. your 60 seconds start now okay which planet is king of ttvs one of the kepler you can, things you can pass if you want <laughs> one of the ones that was on our competition i don't know Okay, it's uh, it's uh, KY one four two or Kepler eighty eight. Um, the Lovell Observatory is in which U.S. state? Arizona. Yes. Uh, who found planets around Barnard Star in nineteen sixty two that don't exist? Your mum. <laughs> which hot Jupiter arrived eighty two seconds early when it reviewed by Tess? Wasp eighteen. Wasp four. Okay, you're you got one correct. Yeah, I mean. I- <laughs> That. I think I would only have got that one as well, Hannah. You did. This is tough, you. This is tough. Um, Andrew, your turn. Yes, I guess so. All right, well, I have to be or equal one. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to do. Not very hard. Hey, I'm not an expert in this. You know, what do you expect? You have a PhD? <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, Andrew. Uh, name the teaching and kipping exomoon candidate host planet. Uh... KY 1142? No. No, it's 1625. Uh, is the portmanteau Tranet acceptable? Uh, no. Yes, that's the correct answer. Uh, which line is at 489 nanometers? Uh, 
sodium? Yes, sodium D. Um, in, for example, LHS 1132B, what does the LHS stand for? I'm, S- I'm guessing the S will be survey, but it's going to have to be a pass. Uh, Leuton half second, apparently. Um, complete this pulse- pulsar planet name, PSR 1257 blank. Dot uh, one, two. One, two. Yes, that's correct. Um you got three. That was a total guess. Honestly, that, that, that I, one thing, honest I do not God, know where I pulled that from. <laughs> that's so not fair. I could have got four of those. And so, yeah. what the F? I don't know. Maybe Hannah was sending me some sort of psychic signal. But yeah, that was and a guess. And Tranit? That's a, well, I mean, that, that I, mean, I think, that's I think a we all freebie. know, right? I mean... It's random. What can I say? Thank you. Well, with that, I think we should go over to Test Saigon and we should find out how they do. So, oh, if you hear any bleeps, it's because I, I may have messed up a little bit and asked some questions about a planet which has not yet been officially released. So um, we'll wait for the Xcast news to release that one officially or, and other news sources. But for the moment, these are just, <laughs> just bleeped out the planets. Um, but with that, let's go over to uh, see who we got as our contestants at Test Cyclon for this Exoplanet trivia. Uh, Sam Grunblatt, University of Hawaii. All right, let's try this. Is in which constellation? Uh, Microscopium. That is correct. Yes. Who first published the detection of Pyman CC? Uh, Chelsea Wong. Correct. The phase curves of which planets observed in tests were studied in Luga et al. 2019? Earth. Correct. Right. Who said in 1952 oh, one of the burning questions of astronomy deals with the frequency of planets like bodies? Struva. Struva. Name a transiting circumbinary planet. Uh, <laughs> shit. Uh, anything with AAB, uh, LHS 2240, L- no, fast. No. Uh, complete this hot Jupiter name, HD 209458B. That is correct. Complete this pulsar planet name, PSR 1257. Pass. It's plus 12. Uh, According to Jack's law, how many planets will be discovered by 2031? Oh, shit. Uh, a lot. Uh, 10,000? 10,000 is correct. Okay, you got five out of six. Uh, David Munn, Chicago slash Australia. Uh, are you ready? Do you know you know the rules, right? I'm, I'm aware. Can okay. I phone a friend? Uh, no. Okay, then <laughs> now I'm aware. Okay, the planet finder spectrograph is on which telescope? Uh, Magellan. That is correct. Is the portmanteau Tranet acceptable? No. That is correct answer. <laughs> the phase curves of which planet were observed by tests in... 20, uh, in Luga 2019. Earth. You heard that one. Complete this such Jupiter name. HD 189. Uh, 249B. 733B. <laughs> Photometric campaigns following the 14 hour long transit of which planets in both two, 2004 Pass. and 2012? Is Venus. <laughs> um, name any exoplanetary system with six or more planets. Um, solar system is seen by an alien. That doesn't count. Did you get one? I got one. No, that's it. <laughs> Who was PI of Kepler? Uh, Bill Bruggie. Correct. Okay, you got three out of five. Uh, my name is Adina Feinstein. I'm a second year graduate student at the University of Chicago. Okay. What is the initial eccentricity of the test space graph? <laughs> within, within point one. Okay. Point five five. Uh, which K2 observed hot Jupiter has two nearby companions? I didn't use K2 pass. <laughs> it's Wasp 47. Which planet in the Kepler 11 system is biggest? 
E is correct. Within 50 square degrees, how big is a test camera field? Uh, 24 by 24 degrees. Yes. But the whole field Five, of view is 96 by 24. Uh, what is the orbital period of tests? 13.7 days. Yes. <laughs> Complete this hot Jupiter name, HD 189 blank. Uh, 007 pass. 733. <laughs> name a planet that's known not to transit. Oh, what is the, the four planets? Giant Jupiter, so there's the direct it's a image. Just say 51 pig. Oh, pass. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you got three. My name is Ben Monte. I'm a postdoc at the University of Chicago. Okay. You have 60 seconds to answer as many questions as possible. Yeah. You can pass if you want. Let's do it. Cool. All right. Name a planet known not to transit. Uh, 51 peg. See, yes, so right. easy. On what date did test launch? Um, April 26, 2018. Uh, April 18th. Ah. Complete this M dwarf planet name LHS 11. Uh, 32. No. Uh, yes. Well, I have 40 down, but I think that you can have both. Um, what percentage of the sky is, is TESS going to cover by the end of the extended mission? The extended mission, 90%. Yeah, I'll give you that, 94. Uh, which of these molecules have we not detected in an atmosphere of the next planet? Methane, water, CO2, ammonia. Ammonia. Yes. Uh, which observatory was the first to detect an exoplanet from initially transit photometry? Like from transit photometry. Um, Spitzer. Uh, Ogle. Okay. Uh, complete this pulsar planet name, PSR 1257 blank. BCD. Plus 12 BCD. Uh, right. Okay, you're five. Alright. I'm Joey Rodriguez, uh, postdoc at Harvard, uh, working at the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard, this morning. Awesome. Okay, so you have 60 seconds. Okay. Are you ready? No. Okay, here we go. Uh, which Trappist-1 planet is biggest in radius? You can always guess. G. It's, it's G. Uh, in HD 209458B, what does the HD stand for? Uh, <laughs> Pass. I don't remember. It's Henry Draper. Uh, name the Tichy and Kipping ExoMoon candidates. Oh, Kepler 16, 28? 25, but I'll give you that. It's close enough. Ne complete this hot Jupiter name, HD 209 blank. 458. 458. Uh, name any exoplanetary system with six or more planets. K2266. I don't have that on my list. Does it have it? I published it. Ah, shit. <laughs> it's, wait, uh, Canada's count? Yeah, sure. Yep. <laughs> name a planet that we know does not transit. Uh... Latham's planet. Yeah. Four, four out of seven, I think he has. Oh, no, that's, that's pretty good. Dave Armstrong from the University of Warren. Okay, three, two, one. The phase curves of which planet observed in tests were studied in Luga et al. not 2019? 18? Uh, which of these molecules have we not detected in exoplanet atmospheres? Methane, water, CO2, or ammonia? Yeah, correct. Which planet in the Kepler 11 system is biggest? E? E, so close. <laughs> Which Trappist 1 planet is largest? G? G, yes. <laughs> Complete this hot Jupiter name, HD 189 blank. 733? B? Yes. <laughs> uh, which transit hunting observatory at Paranel is named after a Belgian biscuit? Trappist. No, it's Speculus. 
Name a planet known not to transit. You got three. Hello, I'm Jane Beckby and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam. So you have 60 seconds? You ready? No. <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. Uh, which transit hunting observatory is named after a Belgian biscuit? Speculars. Yes. What two Greek letters are used in astroseismology to represent the separation between peaks and spectrum? Delta New. I give you. I can't give half points. Oh, um, which hot Jupiter arrived 82 seconds early in test? Lost four. Correct. <laughs> is in which constellation? It begins with. <laughs> yes. Yeah. On what date did test launch? Plus or minus five days. Yes, I knew that. April 18th. Um, what does HD stand for in HD 209? Henry Draper. Yes, you do have an idea. Yes. Okay. Which of these molecules have we not detected in an exoplanet atmosphere? Methane, water, CO2, or ammonia? Not planet that's known not to transit? 51 Pegasi no, yes, yes, yes. that one, that is one. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> um, who said, in the 16th century, this space we declare to be infinite in it are infinity of worlds of the same kind of our own? Kepler? Bruno. Oh, no. Name any exoplanetary system with six or more planets. Trappist one. Yes. The phase curve of which planet was observed in test and published in Luger 2019? Earth. Oh, yeah. Which That's transit hunting observatory yeah. at Paranel is named after a Belgian biscuit? Speculus. That is correct. Which planet in the Kepler 11 system is largest? F. It's E. <laughs> Three correct. Yeah, I know. That's basically what I want to yeah. So, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, James Owen, Imperial College. Okay, here we go. Which K2 observed hot Jupiter has two nearby companions? Wasp 47. Yes. Okay, which of these atoms have we not detected in an exoplanet atmosphere? Helium, lithium, sodium, calcium, or iron? Lithium. No, it's calcium. The phase curves of which planet observed by TESS were studied in Luger et al. 2019? The Earth. The Earth is correct. In <laughs> Name a planet known not to transit. Uh, 51 peg. What is the orbital period of TESS, the spacecraft? 88 days. No, it's 13 days. Which line is at 489 nanometers? Emission line. Sodium. Correct. Complete this hot Jupiter name, HD 189 blank. 733B. Yes. Okay, you've got five. Hi, I'm Jessie Christensen. I'm a research scientist at the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute. Great. So you have 60 seconds to answer as many questions as possible. Sure. Ready? Yes. Okay. What percentage of the sky will TESS have covered by the end of the extended mission? 94%. That is correct. Which hot Jupiter arrived 82 seconds early? Wasp 4B. Yes. How many cameras will Plato have? 
24? Yeah, I'll give you that. Which K2 observed hot Jupiter has two nearby planet companions? Was 47? Yes. Which planet hosting star moves at 10.3 arc seconds per year? T Garden star? It's Barnard star. Uh, what does RM stand for in the RM effect? Rusted McLaughlin. What is the initial eccentricity of the test spacecraft? The initial eccentricity? Of test, the spacecraft. Oh, uh, I, I don't know. Pass. <laughs> you got five. Hooray! Alright, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Andrew Vanderberg. Great, so you have 60 seconds to okay. answer as many questions as possible. You ready? Okay. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Is the portmanteau Tranet acceptable? Yes. No, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> what? Whose name is attached to the evaporation valley detected in Kepler radii? B.J. Fulton. Indeed. Um, which 12-year-old, or 12-mega-year-old M dwarf has a test planet and an edge-on disk? Is it published yet? Uh, it's, it it's on archive. Is it not an archive? I don't think it's on archive. I think it's embargoed. <laughs> How do I know about it? I, I don't know. Everyone right, knows about it. I won't put that one on. But what is it? Uh, a it is, yeah. Complete this hot Jupiter name, HD 189-733. Yes. Uh, the Lovell Observatory is in which US state? Arizona. Yes. Uh, the Planet Finder spectrograph is on which telescope? Magellan. Gemini South I have here. Is that, is that all right? I think it's Magellan. Okay, I'll give it to you. Check that. Uh, which two Greek letters are used in astroseismology to represent the separation between peaks in a Fourier spectrum? New. Two, two De Greek letters. Delta nu. Delta nu. Delta nu. Yeah. Okay, you got six. Okay. Hi, my name's Josh Wynn. I'm on the astro faculty at Princeton. Here we go. Which transit hunting observatory at Paranal is named after a Belgian biscuit? That is speculous. It is. Whose name is attached to the evaporation valley detected in Kepler radii? Whose name? Oh, Fulton. B.J. Fulton. Fulton? Yeah. Uh, the Lovell Observatory is in which U.S. state? The which observatory? Lovell, sorry. Lovell. Oh, that's Arizona. Yes, it is. Uh, what two Greek letters are used in astroseismology to represent separation between peaks in Fourier spectrum? Delta Nu. Delta Nu. Which of these atoms have we not detected in an exoplanet atmosphere? Helium, lithium, sodium, calcium, or iron? Lithium. Uh, calcium. Has to miss okay. that. Paper. Bummer. Uh, name a planet known not to transit. Name a planet known not to transit. Uh, Proxima B. Proxima, yes. Okay, six. You're actually winning. I'm Dave Sharp. I'm a professor of astronomy at Harvard. Okay. Name any exoplanetary system with six or more planets. Oh. Uh, Trappist one. Yes. Um, which nearby 12, 12 mega year old M dwarf with an edge on disk has a test planet? Oh, um. Uh, yes. Uh, is in which constellation? <laughs> Microspion. Yes. Uh, which transit hunting observatory at Paranel is named after a Belgian biscuit? Speculous. Yes. Uh, which hot Jupiter arrived 82 seconds early in tests? Oh, um. Last four. Yes. On what date did test launch? Um, uh, in April uh, 2018. Do I need the exact date? Guess one. Uh, April uh, 18th. Exactly. On the nose. Okay. How many cameras will Plato have? Oh, oh 24. <laughs> I'll give you that. Yeah. It's 26, but there's a, a bit of wiggle room. You got seven.
That's, okay. that's in the lead. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm a contender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dave. Okay. Thank you. Great. Well, there we have it. That was about 20 people that took part. And thanks to everyone that did that. I couldn't put everyone on, unfortunately, because it would have been hideously long. So thanks to Jake Clark, Anne-Marie Cody, Christine Lamb, Ward Howard, Ethan Cruz, Max Gunter, Brianna Zawadzki, and Emily Gilbert, who also took part, but you didn't hear on this. And I managed to catch up with Dave Charbonneau after the conference to figure out which planet he wanted to adopt. Okay, so I'm here with the winner of the Exocast competition at the Test Cycon, David Charbonneau. Well done. Thanks for playing. Oh, I'm 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 excited to hear that I uh, won. Okay, so so what planet do you want to pick to go into our Hall of Fame or adopted planet list? So I think there's a lot of new exciting planets to choose from, but I'm going to go with LHS 3844b. Cool. And so what's what's exciting about this this planet? So this planet uh, is a, um, uh, a new discovery. It came out of the first sector of test data, and it is extremely accessible for follow-up. So because the star is small and very close by, and we expect the planet to be very hot, uh, then we should be able to start uh, studies of its atmosphere right away. And uh, in particular, it provides a really interesting test case of, uh, of the, of the um, ability of terrestrial planets to hold on to their atmospheres when they're under uh, extreme irradiation. So I'm really looking forward to um, lots of future studies about this world. Cool, yeah, well, um, I look forward to reporting it in our Exocast News. Okay, great, and you're involved with the, with the study, is that right, to, to find it? I was uh, a co-author, there were many yeah. co-authors, I was, <laughs> I was a distant co-author, but actually the MIRTH data uh, were very important in terms of uh, confirming it right away. We were able to see the signal in MIRTH. Uh, and then also a unique contribution of MIRTH was to find the rotation period of the star. And that told us that the star was very slowly spinning and therefore the system was very old. And that means, of course, the planet has to be old too. Cool. Well, it's always great to have a co-discoverer of a planet adopt it into our list. So thank you very much, David. Good to talk to you. Cool. So from planetary detection to planetary protection. So what, what is planetary protection, Andrew? Thanks, you. Yeah, we touched on it a little bit last month uh, towards the end of um, of my segment from AbSycon. Um, and I realized that, that we hadn't actually had a chance to really discuss the concept before we introduce it in, in much detail. So at first hearing the term planetary protection might conjure up visions of maybe the Space Force, you know, maybe repelling an alien invasion. Um, and actually, this might not be too far from the mark if you consider that Earth's biosphere is maybe the alien invasion and our spacecraft are the vehicles on which they're traveling. Uh, and the Space the space Force in this context is, um, I don't know, I, I, didn't, I didn't write that bit down. Um, so planetary <laughs> protection is aimed to control the contamination uh, between Earth and other bodies in the context of space exploration missions, and that's what's known as forward contamination. So this is where Earth life is contaminating uh, another world, another body uh, in the solar system. And this has long been a concern of scientists who are interested in studying uh, habitable environments beyond Earth that we can, that we can actually reach, um, uh, including Carl Sagan and Joshua Lederberg, who are some of the early visionaries in this field. Um, so to a lesser but still, you know, somewhat important degree, we also don't want to risk contamination of the Earth with a potential extraterrestrial biota after a sample return mission, which is what's known as back contamination. So we have forward contamination and back contamination. And these are the two uh, kind of sides of planetary protection. 
And I guess there are also, you know, valid ethical concerns um, regarding the contamination of planetary environments in general, you know, possibility of, of false positive life detection events aside. Do we have a responsibility to conserve these environments if we're visiting them and we're using them for science, um, even if they can uh, support life or if they can't support life? What is the, uh, what's the legal framework there? And that's a whole other episode, really, if you want to get into it. But let's focus on planetary protection efforts, and most of those have been directed at Mars, which kind of makes sense. It's no coincidence. Um, you know, for one thing, it helps that we can actually feasibly reach and operate spacecraft from Mars without having to wait years or decades for it to arrive. And of course, we also think that there's probably some habitable environments on Mars, uh, if not now, but certainly in the past, uh, maybe subterranean refugia or subsurface uh, environments now. And therefore, uh, space agencies have prioritized sending life detection missions, uh, even if they're not necessarily called that, to search for, uh, for biosignatures and investigate uh, Mars's habitability, uh, including Viking, uh, Curiosity, and of course the upcoming Mars 2020 rover. Now, of course, we wouldn't want to get uh, to Mars or another a body that we spent you know, billions of dollars to, to uh, develop a large-scale astrobiology mission. Um, we get to an asteroid, we get to a body in the outer solar system, we discover life there, which would be an incredible discovery, uh, or maybe a biomarker, and then we, we look a bit close and it just so happens to look very suspiciously similar to microbes that could be living in the lab or the assembly room back on Earth, and this is a huge issue, obviously. Um, but now you're thinking maybe if you're not an astrobiologist, you might be thinking, OK, even if a few spores make it through the sensitive cleaning process and can, they can somehow survive the launch, um, surely the vacuum of cold and, and the radiation, uh, just the general harshness of the space environment should disinfect the spacecraft. And, you know, and admittedly, this is a pretty rational assumption, you know, given space is, is kind of harsh. And this was actually the assumption that many early planetary science missions operated on. However, it was suspected and has now been confirmed by multiple studies carried out on the ISS during the 1990s and still ongoing today that Earth-based bacterial organisms are super, super hardy and they can easily survive uh, you know, the, the cleaning and the launch and the, the crew stage and even uh, the landing. Um, so one such study, which was uh, on the ISS, found that communities of Bacillus subtilis, which is a spore-forming model anaerobe bacteria, which is often used in these kind of experiments. Um, so a community of Bacillus subtilis, when exposed to space vacuum and galactic cosmic radiation for over 2,000 days outside the ISS, still exhibited a 1-2% to survival rate as a community. Uh, and another experiment found survival rates between 15 and 45% when exposure time was around 300 days, which is about the time of a typical journey to Mars. So that's a considerable um, number of organisms that are surviving in what we would consider to be a pretty sterile environment. So those experiments, as well as all, you know, all the others that we do in astrobiology anyway, have revealed the extraordinary limits of extremophile organisms on the Earth. Um, and you know, it confirms time and time again that we need to clean our spacecraft, we need to reduce the bio-burden, as it's known, which is the life-based contamination. Uh, and this includes you know, orbiters, landers, rovers, and now even our drones, as well as interstellar spacecraft. And we have to keep this to a minimum. But how much is minimum, and who gets to decide and set those limits? Um, well, some guidelines do exist, and they've been set by the International COSPAR, which is the Committee on Space Research, and as you might expect, they vary by the type of mission and the, the target body of that mission, um, and they fall into these five categories. 
uh, starting in category one and moving to category five with the, with the measures getting more stringent as you approach category five. So for category one targets, uh, this includes things like undifferentiated metamorphosed asteroids and Jupiter's moon Io. You don't actually need any planetary protection measures at all because these are considered to be completely sterile, uninhabitable environments, so you don't have to take any, any particular measures to ensure that your spacecraft is clean. But those planetary protection requirements become increasingly strict as you approach category five. So for category two measures, uh, these are, uh, are needed for flybys, landers, orbiters, uh, on comets, asteroids, Venus, the Moon, outer solar system gas giants, Ganymede, Callisto, Titan, surprisingly, Triton, the Pluto-Charon system, and the KBOs. Uh, category three restrictions come into play when you want to fly by or orbit Mars, Europa, Enceladus, and maybe some other icy moons with subsurface oceans. And category four applies to land emissions on those worlds. So that's Mars, Europa, Enceladus. Category five governs backwards contamination alone. That is sample return to Earth from another body. Uh, and uh, this, this covers things like JAXA. So that's the Japanese Space Agency's mission Hayabusa 1 and 2, which is returning material from an asteroid. However, it's impossible to remove all living material from, from uh, spacecrafts, even by medical and industrial processes, and therefore there's always going to be some risk of forward contamination. But how much risk is acceptable and how is that determined? And again, this could be a whole episode, a whole, a whole book, and it has been. Um, but here we can, we can reintroduce a familiar name, Carl Sagan. So Carl and Sidney Coleman developed a simple equation uh, to estimate forward contamination risk way back in 1965 when they were thinking about Martian Martian missions. Um, and this, this formulation considered the initial number of organisms on or in the spacecraft, their survival during the launch, cruise, and landing stage, as well as the probability of release and subsequent growth on, or proliferation on the target body. And a lot of this might sound familiar because it's actually quite quite similar concepts to the panspermia, uh, you know, kind of interplanetary transfer of life that we discussed on the show before, but in the reverse. We're trying to prevent that panspermia in this case. So then the probability of contamination is given as some fractional number of organisms that could be present after taking all of those various effects into account. And for example, the limit uh, for, um, for Europa, it, it, when considering the probability of introducing a single viable terrestrial organism is 10 to the minus 4. So that 10 to the minus 4 chance of introducing a, a single viable terrestrial organism into that ocean. Uh, and for Mars, it's uh, 0.01 or 10 to the minus 2, so somewhat less strict. And the limits are, less, are, are more stringent for Europa and Enceladus, as warm subsurface oceans are generally considered to be more habitable for Earth-based biota than the dry, oxidized surface of Mars, which I think seems fair. Would, um, my, my thoughts here is maybe for probes, it's easy to get to that limit, but maybe for crewed missions, um, I don't see how you would be able to grow stuff on Mars without accidentally letting some soil bacteria into the into the Martian substrate. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should have I should have caveated this entire segment with you know I'm I'm thinking of only uh, robotic spacecraft here or you know things that are landing on other on other worlds that aren't um, that aren't uh, crewed as you say that brings a whole other element to this and yeah changes the limits completely and there has been. Um, I'll get onto that in a little bit, a little bit later in the segment when we discuss uh, Hubble and its servicing, because there was some, you know, you needed to service Hubble, you also needed to make sure it was clean, and a lot of the servicing was done by humans. So there was actually a case study uh, of of Hubble as being a, a good candidate for, you know, kind of bio burden reduction. There's like uh, human DNA on Kepler because there's there's human hairs in the CCD. You can see if you look at the flat fielding. So. 
Yeah, obviously, it's, um, they failed on it, that it's, as well. It's tricky, yeah. and humans make things much more much more complicated. So the planetary yeah. protection measures for Mars are a little bit more complicated than just those five categories. There's also things called special regions, which I didn't even go into, but they have special uh, special uh, planetary protection measures because they're considered somewhat more habitable than the rest of Mars. Right. Oh, cool. And I'd imagine things are going to change completely when we actually have to consider putting humans uh, on the ground. Given uh, how robotically occupied Mars is, relatively speaking um can we make an estimate of how much earth bacteria or or biological material is on mars wow that's a really interesting idea and I, th- I i guess we could we can make an estimate as to what the bio burden on curiosity and on the mers were and you know calculate you know the the decontamination events as we go I think that'd yeah. be really interesting to know because that, that's, that <laughs> that's something that we're going to have to understand, especially as we move out to these icy moons. And it's something that's really important on a body like Mars, where those limits are much, much uh, higher in that you do, we don't worry as much as we would about these other worlds. Like you said, that if we can use that information to make those kinds of estimates, then we can use that to use make further predictions. And I mean, Mars, as well as being a potentially habitable environment, is also is also an environment that's incredibly uninhabitable in that it has a very high UV flux. And actually understanding how that is going to interact with any organisms that do survive is going to also be very important for calculating the bio burden and just astrobiologically interesting. Um, so that's actually one of the ideas about sterilization. It's a, kind of seems a little bit lazy. Um, oh, I'm actually going to go through the, uh, the, the methods of sterilization right here. So this is a good little segue, actually. Um, because I guess that all the takeaways here is that we have to make sure things are clean. Um, but it's not that easy when you have uh, an enormous billion dollar spacecraft. You can't exactly just dunk it into a tub of disinfectant and, and hope that all is well. Um, you have sensitive instruments here, you have volatile equipment, and these all require specialized and careful but extremely intense and severe cleaning regimens. So, I mean, the search for effective sterilization methods is pretty much as old as planetary protection itself. And, you know, it's still ongoing. There doesn't seem to be one method that's that's the best one. Um, but there are a few out there that I'm just going to cover. And probably the most, the one that people who are not specialists are most familiar with is assembling a spacecraft in a certified clean room. We can all uh, think back to JWST or, or, you know, name your space your space mission you can think of it being assembled in in jpl's clean room and you could do a whole episode on on clean rooms themselves if that's what you're into um they're they're also very interesting have whole 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 a number of different limits and and yeah like i said a whole episode's worth of, of stuff for just for clean rooms so that's probably people's first um first kind of introduction to planetary protection why are those humans dressed in those in crazy suits just to build a spacecraft and this is why planetary protection make sure none of their hairs get onto the ccd and mess up our observations. Um, other me- methods of, of, uh, of decontaminating include um, dry heating certain components. So if you have uh, you know, electronics or, or, or mechanics that can be dry heated to above 110 degrees Celsius for some amount of time, that is, a, that is one of the tried and tested methods. You can also just use surface alcohol wipes. Seriously, nothing more Nothing more fancy than that. Pretty good at removing life. Um, you can use hydrogen peroxide, but of course this affects uh, you know, the finish and, and certain lubricants. The same with ethylene oxide, which is used in the medical industry. Um, and certain uh, new, new technologies looking at gamma radiation and electron beams, which is again from the medical industry, but this is something that's under review. And uh, as you mentioned, um, Hannah, there is actually 
this idea that we could get the maybe the environment to do some of the sterilization for us. Um, if we understand what the UV environment is on Mars, maybe we can reduce our, our bio burden a little bit. Um, and I mean, uh, some of the ideas are yeah, the, the passive UV sterilization uh, on the Martian um, on the Martian surface, as well as the CO2 snow, the supercritical CO2 snow that sometimes falls on Mars is considered to be a great desterilization uh, you know, material. You, you know, that's going to kill pretty much any Earth life if if it's covered in in supercritical CO two, um, and also the particle flux uh, on Europa or around Europa and and Enceladus uh, in the uh, the gas giants is going to be incredibly high, and that even could 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 reduce some of the bio burden. And I guess a lot of this is just about multiple stages of reduction. Like if we can make them as clean as possible when we launch, uh, you know, then there's much less likely that contamination is going to is going to you know pass down the chain. So where does the applicability to exoplanets come in? Um, and I, you know, I'm not going to say that we're likely to forward contaminate uh, a nearby exoplanet in our lifetime, at least. But a lot of the technological developments that have dri driven our need to contaminate or decontaminate have also um, benefited telescope design and deployment, which is something that we're all uh, that we all benefit from in this field. So it's it's crucial to maintain a contaminant-free optical path for space-based observatories. Uh, and this includes life. This includes bits of human hair, uh, as you mentioned earlier, or just, or just life itself living on your mirrors. You don't want that. Um, and this is especially true for things that cannot be serviced once they're deployed. Um, so you can see this, the overlap between certain exoplanet observatories and planetary protection here, what's important to, to keep it clean. And actually, um, uh, Hannah, you mentioned the stability of TESS and the fact that it might crash into the moon. That in itself is a planetary protection issue. You know, if we had biota that was left on test and it could somehow survive its 300-year mission uh, to, to crash into the moon, uh, then you know we have a we have a planetary protection issue there. Um, so you know it's it's incredibly important to keep that clean. And actually, um, one of the most or one of the case studies that's often used in planetary protection is uh, the successful cleaning and sterilization of Hubble's optics and equipment, because not only did we make have to make sure that it was all clean before it got up there, but there was also bio burden management and reduction during uh, the subsequent on orbit. Uh, servicing mission. So we had actual astronauts who were covered in freaking DNA and covered in biota going out there uh, doing spacewalks and you know they had to handle equipment and make sure that was all clean. So they often in the planetary science uh, uh, research or the little bit that I've managed to, to do and I should say with thanks to my friend Sam Royal, Dr. Sam Royal from Imperial who helped me with some resources here. I said I'd give him a shout out um, and he you know he said you know Hubble was used as an example of, of how to clean a spacecraft and do it well. And I mean, even before that, it was discovered by the time of Viking that there's a lot of unforeseen benefits to making your spacecraft able to survive that cleaning process. If you can make components that can withstand the terminal sterilization environment, as it's known, these are invariably more robust and therefore perform better in space anyway uh, as a result. So, in summary, I guess there are a lot of parallels and crossover between planetary protection, astrobiology, lithopanspermia, um, and I think once you learn a little bit about the lengths we need to go to decontaminate our spacecraft, you can appreciate maybe the resilience of Earth's biosphere. I was wondering, do each of the spacecraft, each of the robotic rovers, drones, do they all have one value that every single part of that rover has to get to? So if there's an internal thing that should never see the outside, does that have the same limits? Or or is it each part, each individual part, depending on its role, has, has certain limits? That's a fantastic question, Hannah. Uh, to be honest, I don't know. Uh, the reports that I saw were, were single numbers for the spacecraft mission. So I'm assuming it's for it's 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 a it's a probability of contamination, which I guess is going to take into account, you know, what's on or in the spacecraft that was specifically stated. So I, I guess when that calculation is made, it is containing 
you know, intrinsically or maybe explicitly all of those all of those those components as well. And in theory, if they were all constructed or assembled to the same limit, then yeah, they should have the same uh, they should have the same bio burden. But of course, you know, these these are often international missions with with missions with instruments developed, uh, you know, ESA and Jackson, Roscosmos, and you name it. Um, and all of those those in- industries at one time had different planetary protection uh, limits, which is why the CASPAR. Uh, guidelines came into play and of course this is still ongoing this is still you know quite an, uh, a new field uh, in that respect interesting i thought so i thought so okay. so i'm sure it's been another busy month in exoplanet science and here to take us through all the latest news and developments is hannah on the news desk Right. We've got a lot of things to get through. I'm not going to be able to cover everything. I had a huge list of papers that I went through for this month. (laughs) A huge list and I could not in any way fit them all in. So I'm going to start with some that were requested from our Twitter followers. One of those is a new discovery of uh, exoplanet magnetic fields. So uh, Nature Astronomy had an interesting article this month. It was looking at a star-planet interaction for these hot Jupiters. So this is the interaction between a very, very large hydrogen-helium planet next to a, a, its host star. And this is actually gives us the ability to get an indirect measurement, it seems, of the planet's magnetic field, something that we've we've only got evidence of in our solar system. So... What they did in this study is they looked at the calcium 2K emission lines uh, and they measured the power that was modulated by this magnetic interaction you would expect to get between the star and the planet. And then from that modulation in the power of this spectral line, they could derive a strength of the magnetic field for four hot Jupiters. Those were HD 189733B, a very famous one here on Exocast. HD 179949B, Tau Boo B, my favorite one to say, and New Andromeda B. So these four giant planets, they were able to find that their magnetic field values for these hot Jupiters range between 20 to 120 Gauss. Now, to put that in context, Jupiter in our solar system, it has a magnetic field of approximately four Gauss. So these are much, much larger than that. And the Earth itself, which has a magnetic field, which protects all of life on our planet, has a magnetic field strength of just over half a Gauss. So these are incredibly strong magnetic fields that they've detected around these giant planets due to that star-planet interaction. Were these detections, like actual detections or just uh, estimation? These were inferred based on the modulation in the power of the calcium 2K emission lines. So the study was led by P.W. Corley from University of Colorado, and they state that these large field strengths may produce observable radio emission, which could help confirm the strengths that they think they're measuring from this, this, these power uh, modulations. So looking at them in the radio, because of the size of these magnetic fields, 20 to 100 Gauss is, is huge, they should be able to measure radio emission, which would confirm these these detections of this modulation I'm, I'm really also for one of these the re- one of the reasons i'm really excited about this is magnetic fields produce uh, a stream of or an inflow a mechanism to inflow particles so an interaction between different particles from the star and from the planet and we see evidence of that on the earth with the aurora so 
we see evidence of that with Jupiter, with emission, so particles leaving Io, the moon, imprinting on the aurora of Jupiter. So what I'm really hoping is that we can get a really nice radio emission of some of these, show the orientation of the fields, which is also important to understand the spin orient and, and any kind of misalignments in the magnetic field, and potential auroral signatures in the atmosphere which would be absolutely epic so i think this is a really amazing starting point of something that people have been looking for for quite a while so having these measurements is really really interesting as we are at a discovery conference this week with hugh roaming on the road uh, i thought i'd start with uh, a couple of the discoveries and some of the more uh exciting exoplanets as we we look at some of what a test has been finding now this is all looking at things that have turned up prior to the test conference so i'm sure we'll hear about a lot more of them in the next week but uh, i start off with a super earth a 1.1 earth radius planet on a 22 hour orbit and a sub-Neptune, a 2.3 Earth radius on a five-day orbit, both transiting a late-type M-dwarf, LP791-18, which itself is, is just under 3,000 Kelvin and 17% the size of the Sun. So this is a very, very small star with a very short-period super-Earth, or really more Earth-sized at 1.1 Earth radius, and a sub-Neptune-sized world. And there's currently not masses for these targets, but there's a lot of potential for radial velocity measurements and transmission spectroscopy as they orbit so close to this very small star. So that's an interesting one for potential future studies. TESS has also discovered two hot Jupiters near the James Webb continuous viewing zone, meaning that I have potential opportunities for follow-up on those ones as well. It's the, these ones are called TOI-150b. Uh, that one's relatively massive and eccentric. And TOI-163b, which is a slightly inflated Jupiter. So perhaps a little bit more follow-up potential there uh, as the gravity won't be so high as to compress the atmosphere. We also have a terrestrial-like planet in a triple M star system, just 6.9 parsecs away, which is roughly 21 light years. A young planet in the Tucana Hologium Association. I almost probably got that right. Uh, so that's just a, in an association of stars, which means that we can measure the age of it. So that's a roughly, uh, that's a very young planet at 45 mega years. And that's really interesting for looking at planet evolution. So that one's got some potential there. And potentially three new multi-planet systems, which was uh, shown using a Bayesian n-body retrieval machine learning algorithm. So there's still a lot coming out of tests that they're trying to understand. And all of the things that we get out aren't necessarily fully confirmed planets right away. But it's still not just tests that's sweeping the skies for exoplanets. We have a lot of other missions, a lot of other telescopes that are trying to do that. And our old friend Kepler is still constantly delivering new and exciting discoveries. I want to start with some work uh, from uh, a PhD in the making, as, I, as it's called, uh, from Ethan Cruz, who released a catalogue of hundreds of new planet candidates and eclipsing binaries in K2 campaign 0 to 8. So this was this was a huge part of his PhD, um, and the algorithm that he developed to search for new planets was designed to capture all types of problems with planet searches. So low signal to noise, single transits, like some of the things that Hugh works on, multiple planets, super short periods, transit timing variations, uh, and just those nice standard reasonable transits which occur at nice regular times. 
And what they did was they found over 350 new candidates, which doubles the previous number. And they found all kinds of the systems that I just mentioned along the way. I will stress here that these are, again, candidate planets and will require more detailed follow-up to move them into the confirmed planet category. But there's a lot of potential here as we're looking back at these, these missions which have now ended, finding new and exciting planet parameter space that we can explore. And with the TESS extended mission, we hopefully will visit a number of the K2 campaign regions in the sky and see if we can continue follow up of those planets. Um, if you want to know more, you can find a thread from Ethan Cruz um, at Ethan underscore Cruz detailing the paper and the findings all on Twitter. But K2's not done there. We've also got some individual detections, including K2146b, which now has a buddy, K2146c, which was discovered via transit timing variations and appears to have an observed precession, meaning that it doesn't orbit in just one plane. It kind of moves around like a spinning top. And we've got four new planets that have been discovered in the K2 data, thanks to additional information from TESS. So K243C, 168C, 198C and 198D have been added to the confirmed planet list, showing that the use of archive data in confirmation of test candidates that pop up as well. So working together and given the information that we've heard from Hugh about the, the test extension, I expect we're going to continue to see a lot of overlap between these two missions and discovery and confirmation of planets in both cases. So we've got a lot of exciting work ahead in the discovery phase space. However, there's also been uh, associated with that a lot of work on exoplanet populations and trying to understand populations of discovered planets in a global sense. And I honestly found so many of them this month I do not have any time to cover all of them so please make sure you check out ADS and the archive to, to see a load more of those but I'm just going to highlight uh, one of them here this was work done by Armstrong and their team from Warwick and they appear to have found a gap in the mass distribution of Neptunes to terrestrial planets as a function of orbital period they're calling this the 2020 gap as it follows a linear trend from 20 earth masses down and from zero to 20 days orbital period. So it's a linear trend cutting through that phase space. And the study really looked at very specifically planets with well-measured masses. And they did this in two samples. Um, and they both found in those two samples this very significant gap, this 2020 gap, this linear trend from the high mass planets down to low mass planets going from zero to 20 orbital period days and a lot of the the things that are interesting there is that when you look at this the sample is still quite small so the well measured masses the number of planets that we've got is still really quite small and we need to bring that number up so that we can really understand the statistics associated with these different gaps and whether or not they can be explained by theoretical models. And there was a lot of papers on different theoretical models to try and explain these gaps, including the, the Fulton gap, which we've explained here on Exocast before. So as we get more and more test discoveries around bright stars where we can hopefully get those mass measurements, I think that it'll be really, really uh, interesting to see how the evolution in these planet populations kind of comes to, to fruition. Because as we've seen with the Kepler mission, our solar system is not right now 
particularly representative of that sample. So we've got a lot way, long way to go before we can start trying to understand the context of our solar system in our galaxy. I want to uh, finish up here on the papers that have been, been going through, looking at some atmospheric characterization. Uh, we start with a Czech team who have been using HARPS high-resolution spectroscopy to produce an independent detection of sodium in the atmosphere of a number of planets. WASP-76, they found an independent detection of the sodium absorption, and they have confirmed a low-resolution detection of sodium in the atmosphere of WASP-127b. So these are two giant planets that they've been able to use high-resolution spectroscopy to confirm previous detections. And what they were also able to do is uh, provide a null detection on two uh, giant planets, WASP-166b and KEL-11b, where it was anticipated that you would get an incredibly strong sodium detection. So what they've concluded that is that there's likely to be high-level obscuring clouds in these atmospheres, which will have an impact on any other observations that we might make in those atmospheres to try and understand them a little bit more. I want to head into the UV uh, with a study from the Hubble Panset team searching for metal islands in the exosphere of a warm Neptune GJ436b. We've seen GJ436b mentioned many times here on Exocast before. And, and just to let you know, uh, I've got to announce my, my bias and association here. I'm, I'm on this paper. This is a Panset program which has 500 orbits of Hubble time to look at 20 different exoplanets. But this, this portion of the program uh, was led by a PhD student Leonardo Dos Santos at Geneva and they did an excellent in-depth study looking at the UV cos spectra from Hubble of GJ436b which has got uh, a lot of active exospheric mass loss. So what they found was that there's a strong contamination in the star itself in the UV. The star itself is producing a huge amount of variations in the UV flux. Um, and what they did was they were able to show that the previous measurements of silica three metal lines were likely actually due to stellar effects. So there was no confirmation of that previous detection because the star appears to be so active in these wavelengths. It's more, more likely that it was the star that was being previously detected and not the planet. However, they also find no evidence for other strong metal lines. However... They do observe this very strong excess absorption of lime and alpha, which is indicative of the hydrogen gas, um, where in transit they saw up to 50% increased transit depth in the blue and 30% in the red wings of the lime and alpha absorption feature. And this shows that there is a huge amount of atmospheric mass loss from this planet. And that's been previously measured for GJ436b. But what this also shows is that that is stable over year baseline timelines. So over the past five years, we've got measurements of this Lyman alpha, and it shows that the mass loss of this planet is continuous and stable. And when you link that to the fact that we're unable to detect any of these heavier elements, so these metals, it means that the mass loss of the hydrogen is not taking these heavier elements in the atmosphere away with it. So while the planet is losing a lot of its hydrogen gas, that hydrogen is not also stripping these heavier elements from the atmosphere. And that actually suggests that the atmospheric metallicity, so the amount of heavy elements in the atmosphere, will increase over time for this world as it loses its hydrogen and not its heavier elements. So it adds this other 
kind of dynamic to looking at the metallicity of a planetary atmosphere and it adds that time element to it this evolution element of these neptune-sized worlds and their mass loss and how that really dictates what we're measuring at the time so it's it's interesting that we've really caught this planet in a very dynamic part of its lifetime and we can use that to try and understand and place these other planets these small neptune-sized worlds on a timeline and see if we're seeing them at an early or late stage in their evolution so i thought that was a really interesting study and to finish up with your characterization just to help push that along there is a new line list from ExoMol for the row uh, vibrational lines of pH. So if you need those to do your modeling for exoplanet characterization, please go get those, those line lists. Um, and, and that's really all I can give you in a nice summary of all the papers that we've got this month. But I, I wanted to finish the news uh, by just mentioning that at the moment we are in a phase of discovery and evolution of astronomy where big things are happening and sometimes those things come at a cost and I think that it's really important that we remember and recognize that. Um, one of those things right now that's very much prominent in the news is the construction of the 30 meter telescope uh, on Mauna Kea in Hawaii and I think that this is an incredibly sensitive subject which I don't have any authority or any base in discussing so I'm, I'm not going to comment on it personally here but I, I just want to say that we need to make sure with everything that we're doing all of the observations we're making they've come with some kind of compromise and some kind of cost and we should acknowledge every single one of those uh, and I saw at the beginning of the test conference that uh, Jesse Christensen who we've had on the show previously announced that some of the work that that's been done in Massachusetts and recognize the native population and the native land that was being used for that so I think it's really important that we do those kinds of things so I just I want to leave that there and that that's a really open issue that's going to evolve over many many years actually that was one of my um <clears throat> one of the most memorable parts of my time in Australia was before every talk that I gave there would be a welcome to country and you know it was never something it was always something that just put things in, in, in context, you know, and it just reminded, as you said, reminds everyone that we're, we're here at the expense of, of perhaps other people and that we should at least, you know, uh, remember that uh, moving forward and every day, basically, that we're, that we're doing anything. And, uh, you know, those science conferences can be, can be a time where you lose that perspective. And, um, yeah. yeah, at the AAS conference this year as well, um, there was a fantastic talk on Oumuamua, the the interplanetary uh, asteroid, um, and half of that talk, uh, the invited speaker gave to um, one of the, the native Hawaiians who helped name it and, and worked with the schools to help name it. I thought that was a really powerful statement. So if we, I, I would love to see that to be continued into the future with all of the different things that we, we're, we're doing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you're right. It's a very complex, a very complex problem uh, that's that's still ongoing and still developing. And I guess we can we can uh, report uh, on that as it as it develops. Yeah. But that's it from the news this month. I'm sure next month will be a challenging one as well. So thank you so much for joining us on another excellent instalment of Exocast. We've had our roaming reporter in the field from the test conference, and we're going to return next month 
with another roaming reporter myself heading to exoclimbs in Oxford followed by extreme solar systems in Iceland so bring you more goings on in the exoplanet community uh, as we roam around the world but until then you can check out all of our previous shows on our website exocast.org and on iTunes follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast and like us on Facebook but until next time goodbye bye 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 I have exoplanets. To explore distant extrasolar worlds, Hugh, stop highlighting the script. <laughs> <laughs>